I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Duck Shauna. She's the author of the book, This Is Not The End Of Me, a book about past Sick Boy guest and dear friend, Leighton Reed. Let's talk about it. We're going to dive into this conversation, which we all, which I had to put a pin in it because it started before the recording recording even started. Um, uh, Dakshana, first of all, so nice to meet you. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you, but I'm also I'm also a little bit. Um, uh, I've been going to a therapist recently, and my therapist had had has brought to light the fact that I I avoid emotion. Uh, uh, sometimes a very particular emotion. And so I feel like, um, and he gave me homework, which was to like go watch really sad movies and then, and then like, and feel those sad movies and like sit with it. And so when when I was looking at the calendar today and saw that this was our recording coming up, I was like, well, fuck, well, I guess this is probably good time to do my homework. This I think will be your homework for the next month. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But, like, but it's funny, out. though, because <laughs> the the thing I was um, – you, you mentioned that you had to put a pin in the conversation that yeah. we were having before we started recording. And um, this this really uh, connects with what we were just talking about. I was I was uh, reminiscing about when we recorded with uh, Leighton, who we're going to talk about today. And we were in the library. It was like one of our first you know, five or six episodes that we recorded – and Leighton was a friend and a, mostly an acquaintance of mine. Like I, I worked with him in one of my like childhood jobs, one of my first jobs when I was 16. And Leighton was, um, I think, seven or eight years older than me. It was kind of like this, this guy that I really looked up to at work. And when I found out that he had terminal cancer and we had started doing this podcast, we, we knew immediately that we wanted to have him on the show and I remember my feelings leading up to that conversation were like this, there was this like incredible amount of nervousness and also um, this anticipation of feeling super sad, like knowing that it was such a, 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 a sad topic to be going into talking to somebody about, like talking about their experience in living with a terminal illness and having a three-year-old son at the time and how the dynamic of that in, in your relationship with your wife and your kid. And I, I just felt like it was going to be so sad. And the funny thing was when we left that room that day after recording that episode, I didn't feel any of that sadness that I thought I was going to feel. I, I, I just felt like so connected to Leighton. And so like, I, I felt like he just did such a great job at making everybody feel comfortable th- with the situation and we had laughed so hard that day and 
learned so much and it was like probably you know what would what would definitely become the foundation of what we wanted sick boy to be going forward and so like i'm kind of feeling that same anticipation of like feeling sad reliving some of that um here with you today dakshana but but i don't know maybe it's not gonna be like that well well let's give some uh let's give some context to what we're talking about um uh in all of that there bry which i think you kind of hit the nail on the head there but um we're we're here with you today dakshana to talk about um, to talk about your your lovely uh, book uh, that you authored that chronicles um, Layton and uh, and and his experience. Why don't you Why don't you give us the um, the sort of synopsis of of your book and uh, and what we're gonna kind of be talking about today? Okay, so Layton, as as you guys have said, was one of the earliest guests on on the podcast. But for people who don't know. Um, who he is, or who, sorry, who he was, um, or the kind of the broad strokes of the story. The book is the real life story uh, of Leighton Reed, who in his early 30s was given a terminal cancer diagnosis. And it happened to come at the same time that he was expecting his first child. So the book chronicles the extraordinary lengths that he and his family went through to keep him alive, but also the evolution that Leighton went through um, in accepting his own mortality and Ooh. preparing his son for life without him. Okay, how did how did you how did you come how did you, we know how we came across Leighton, which was you know Brian had worked with him in the past and and we were like hey we're talking to people who are like sick and dying Leighton you want to come make some jokes about your cancer um, and did not realize what the hell we were walking into in, in that moment. Um, uh, how did you, how did you and Leighton, like, how did you come across Leighton? How did you, how, how does one, how does one find Leighton as a subject to write a book about? Uh, so I met Leighton in a very unusual way. Um, I live in Toronto and he lived in Halifax, and uh, I was about to get married to someone who had grown up in Halifax. And as one does when they're planning a wedding, I started researching wedding photographers in Halifax. And wedding photography is a genre full of cliches. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, I was seeing a lot of work that was like, you know, maybe perfect for most brides, but like not really in tune with, with my vibe. And then I found Leighton's website and there was so much humor in his photos, which is something so unusual, again, in wedding photography. It's not something you would expect, but he made animated GIFs of the couples. <laughs> and one picture that I really feel like sealed the deal for me was um, of this uh, bed. Um, you know, this was in the room that the bride was getting ready in. And there was a package, like an empty package of the Spanx that she had bought for <laughs> her wedding day, just kind of discarded there and it's like any other bride would be mortified by this but like Leighton also had a way of attracting the kind of clients who had the same sort of sense of humor and outlook that mm. that he did so you know she was down with it so I I wrote to him and I said I want to hire you to shoot my wedding in Halifax and um you know we met the next year uh in in April of 2012 when I got married and, uh, you know, I had a very small wedding. I didn't have bridesmaids or anything like that. 
And I actually spent more time with Leighton on my wedding day than I spent with my husband because he was the guy who was like chauffeuring me from like, you know, this house to, you know, where I was getting my hair done and then, you know, back to getting dressed and all of this stuff. And so we spent a ton of time together and we just had very similar senses of humor and uh, it, it just felt like this was a person that I'd known for, for years and years. And it was mm. kind of heartbreaking when I knew that I had to go back to my life in Toronto, that he was going to still be in Halifax. And I was like, this is probably potentially a great life-changing friendship, but I'll never hear from this guy again. And then I heard from him a year later. He had sent an email to a bunch of his former clients um, saying, you know, I'm going to be taking a break from wedding photography for a little while because I have stage four melanoma and I'm going to be doing some treatment, but I'm definitely going to get better and, you know, get back into it. And so, you know, if any of you want to write a review for me, that would help kind of keep my business on ice for a bit. And so, um, you know, I'm sure there are people that replied to that saying, yeah, sure, I'll write a review and I hope you get better soon. Whereas for me, I'm a journalist, I'm just naturally curious, and I sent him, I think, a longish email with a lot of questions, and we started exchanging emails, and then we started having these Skype conversations, and before I knew it, I was kind of like, you know, knee-deep in his life and wanting to tell the story. I had no idea it was going to become a book. I didn't know it was going to become a book for many, many years, but mm. it was an interesting story and just one I couldn't stop reporting. Mm. Well, I, I must say um, for everybody who is listening to this show, everybody who's been a fan of this show and, and followed us along or whether you've, whether you've been following us along since day one, when we had Leighton on the show um, in our first handful of episodes, or if you are um, coming to the show, uh, as a new listener and, and really digging it since we've, since we've joined the CBC as of late, um, I didn't need to read much more than the first page and a half to, to, to go, Oh, this is, this is sick boy. Like this is like, this is, there's so much of what we're trying to do in just that, in just that first page and a half. Like when you are, when you launch into, uh, Layton's coffee enema, situation, (laughs) you know, while his wife is having contractions in the hospital and them trying to figure out like, okay, well I'm having contractions. He's like, well, I got to put this coffee in my ass. Like in the first, within the first couple of paragraphs, I was like, this is so, this is exactly, this is exactly, um, like what we're into and what we're trying to do is like, tell these, tell this, tell these heartbreaking, sometimes heartbreaking and crazy and really painful and hard stories. But with this, like with this layer of humor to it because it's because it inevitably finds its way in there. So I really do. Uh, I really do urge everybody out there who, mm. um, who is a fan of this show. You will absolutely love, love this book. Um, if you, if you're a fan of this show, it is right up your alley. It's, it's really in the same, uh, told in the same vein. Um, and something that I, something that really stuck out to me was, um, I want to find it here. Um, it's in the second chapter, early on in the second chapter, and you you basically say spoiler alert, Taylor Jesus. No, I know. I, I just like this. This <laughs> this is. I, it just was another thing that we've been that we've it's on the last talked, page. It's the that ending, we've talked actually. so much about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This just really stuck out to me because it's something we we talk so much about. Um, you said the situ- the situation was uh, the situation Leighton was in had made him raw and open in a way I'd never seen in anyone else. 
And as I tried to figure out the nature of our relationship, I found that approaching our conversations as a journalist had the unexpected result of fast-tracking our friendship. Rather than slowly inching through the getting-to-know-you stage, as most acquaintances do, we launched right into the heavy, the deep, the uncomfortable. In just a few months, it felt like we'd laid the foundation for a decade's worth of friendship. And that just really stuck out to me. We've been talking a long time on this show about how sometimes we have people on the show and we meet them once, but we go into like the hardest, craziest aspects of their life, how they've dealt with illness, how they've talked to friends and family about it, how they cope with the idea of death. And we, we just launch into these like super heavy things with these people. And we leave conversations being like best friends with people mm-hmm. after an hour. And it's really something remarkable. Like what was that something when you were do when you had this experience with late with Leighton, the sort of like fast tracking your relationship with Leighton, was that something that was new to you or was that something was that something that you had come to expect in your world of journalism? So I think in the past, you know, the longest that I had ever spent on, you know, any one story and any one subject was maybe a couple of months max. And you definitely uh, get close to people, uh, but then the story gets published. Maybe you exchange a couple emails and then, you know, your lives move on. And there are a couple of sources that I'll check in with, you know, from time to time, but it's pretty rare. And this with Leighton was very brand new for me, especially because we, from the very beginning, we didn't know what the end product was. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to talk to you for a couple of weeks and then I'm publishing this story and this publication and, and that'll be it. From the very beginning, it was kind of like, I don't even know where this would run. I just know that there is something very fascinating going on in your world right now and so many sort of competing tensions. And um, I'm just going to keep talking to you and, and we'll see where it goes. And uh, our, our conversations definitely evolved over time too because at the beginning, you know, I would say, okay, I have a Skype conversation with Leighton at 7 p.m. And, you know, it takes some time and write out questions. And we we definitely had a a very friendly rapport from the beginning. But as time went on and I got more and more invested in his life and his family's lives, sometimes he would spend, you know, an hour just catching up as friends. And then I would say, oh, yeah, there's a couple of things that I wanted to ask you about and and start the recording there. So, uh, you know... I knew that we would become close, but I had no idea that this would reach the the Mm. kind of intensity of friendship that it did. At at what point did it become like, you know, like where was the tipping point where it went from your, you just simply being curious and wanting to follow up with Leighton and to see what's going on with his life to you going, okay, I'm, I'm, I am now, I am now like pursuing this in a way where I want this to be, I want to share this with the world. Like I want this to be something that is whatever, whatever, you know, even before the, the concept of the book, but like this idea of like, I want to report on this or I want to, I want to like give this to, I want to give this out to the world for people to like also share in this, this, this experience that I'm having. It was honestly probably after the first time that we had a Skype conversation. So we had exchanged a few emails and then it was kind of like, um, you know, let's chat on Skype. And, you know, to be clear, like even at that beginning stage with the emails and that first Skype chat, you know, um, as I was asking all these questions, Leighton was 
turning to me as a journalist and saying, you know, you do this for a living, you write for a living, and this is how you express yourself. And, mm. um, you know, I feel like what I'm doing right now is something that should be documented in some way. And he mm. was hoping to maybe start journaling or like blogging or something like that. And he just wanted advice from me initially on, on how he might do that. So the purpose of the first few Skype chats was I was going to give him kind of like writing prompts. And I, and I and even said to him, you know, sometimes it might be hard for you to just sit down and write, but how about we have a Skype conversation, I'll record it. And, you know, if you, if you and I are in conversation, maybe it'll be easier for you to express yourself and you can do whatever you want mm. with that. Um, but he was just <clears throat> so open and there was just such an interesting mix of vulnerability and humor and fear um, that he was just ready to share with me from the beginning that I thought, you know, like with all due respect to Leighton, who actually was a super talented writer. Um, I just, I think, uh, very selfishly was like, I want to do something with this and like, sure, do Mm. your project too. But, um, I, I, I just feel like there's something here. And I knew that, Candace, his wife, was super invested um, mm. in in the treatment that he was going to be pursuing, and his family too. And I just thought, there's so many people that are coming together here, and I want to talk to more than just Layton to to tell the story. Yeah, right. For you, what what made Layton's story um, really fascinating? Like, obviously, there's that that emotional connection and and the sense of like the the almost unique and and humorous and lighthearted approach that he took to life. But like, was there something deeper in terms of like the story that you felt like, Oh, other people need to hear this because this can impact them in some sort of way. Yeah. I, I, I think the thing about Leighton at that stage in his life that was so fascinating to me is he had spent, you know, most of his adolescence and early adulthood kind of running away from responsibility, running away from Halifax. You know, he had this dream of living and working on every continent. Um, Mm. He broke up and got back together with Candace a million and one times. And he was just this kind of free spirit and, um, you know, didn't really want to live the kind of life that a lot of people he'd grown up with were living. And then cancer kind of anchored him, you know, he got this diagnosis and then he was like, okay, I, you know, I, I want to go live in Australia, but that's not going to happen. So he settled here. He, he started treatment. He bought a house, he got married, all of this stuff. And then I think, um, in, in these two years when he was, when he was cancer free, it was like, you know, this, this grown up life isn't so bad. And, and he, and Candace decided to have a kid. And just when he was kind of looking forward to this new chapter in his life that a lot of people in their early 30s, you know, experience um, with having kids, he found out that he was, um, you know, very seriously ill, terminally ill. Mm. And I could just see um, this kind of internal struggle that that he was going through. And, and, and you know, right from the beginning... Um, he was always saying to me, whenever we talk about this, can we say when I get better rather than if I get better? Like he was so determined to live um, and very much in denial about what he was facing. Um, And I thought, 
This is something that I bet will change, and I wonder when it is going to change. And and um, I just I want to see that in real time. Mm-hmm. We met we met Leighton. <clears throat> Jeremy and I met Leighton. Brian, like he said, had, had worked with him, and and that was how that was how we when we started doing the podcast. That was how we um, that was how we found out that Jerry and I found out about Leighton's cancer um, through Brian and. And at that, at that time we had, we had literally just started the podcast and, and we were actually like now we have a, you know, we have a guest list that, that, you know, people apply, like dozens of people apply for all the time, like every day. But at this point we were, we were, we were, we had to sit down and try to think about who we could have on the show because, you know, we didn't have any guest applications. We didn't have any of that. We had, we were recording out of the library. It was literally something we had we had just come up with in our, in our heads and recorded a couple of episodes. And so Brian brought up Leighton and kind of touching back on what Brian start, started to say at the beginning about, about having this sort of like sense of fear around having that conversation. Um, you know, we talk about death and illness all the time and we have been for several years, but at this time that was especially for, for me and, and Brian, I think a little, a little more familiar with Jeremy because of his illness, but very much so for Brian and I was like a very foreign thing, you know, talking about death and talking and knowing that we were about to have a conversation with somebody who, who knows at this time, this was 2015. So he, he was very, at this time he was, he knew he was going to die. Um, and one of the things that stood out so heavily about knowing that we were going into this conversation was that he knew that he was going to die, but he did not know when. And he didn't want to know from the doctors what this timeline was, what their, mm expectations or their estimates were and like brian said and i can i totally uh can can uh um um can feel that same thing that that i i was like oh my god we're gonna go talk to this guy he's gonna he's dying i i don't know what to do i don't know what to say i don't know what am i doing why am i doing this podcast why am i talking to these people what makes me qualified to have these conversations like all these things, you know, very early on in the podcast. What did that, that one thing struck me so heavily that he didn't want to know when he was going to die. Was that something that stood out to you? Was that something that, that, that you looked to and said, wow, this is like, did, cause it struck, it struck me at the time as, as like, wow, this guy's a maverick. Like this guy, this guy doesn't give a shit. He just wants to live every day. As if it is, as if it's his last, he's going to, he's, he's just, he, he doesn't want to know. He doesn't want it to cloud his, his life. He just wants to live every day. Was that how it stood out to you? Or, or was there this, or was there this sense of, I'm, I just don't want to know because I'm too scared or I don't want to know because, um, you know, I don't want to think about, I don't want to think about not being here with my son or with my wife. Like, what was your perspective on, on, on that decision not to know when he was not to be given those timelines i think even though he didn't say it to me uh for for a long time i think lane was just very very scared at the beginning and um i think he had some sense that that this was the end i i just think that for him it was a mind game he always talked about how the mind is a powerful tool i think he even said that to you guys um on on that episode that he was on with you Mm -hmm. but for him 
um, especially because he decided initially to do this very intense, demanding alternative therapy, he had to be all in. And he had to convince himself that it was going to work and that he was going to be healthy and he was going to see Finn grow up because if he wasn't certain of it, that's a huge sacrifice to make um, to, you know, be doing like a dozen plus juices a day, to be doing all of these coffee enemas, to close your life down to, uh, to, to an existence that's so small. Um, and, you know, during the initial years uh, of, of this stage four diagnosis, he didn't spend a ton of time with people besides his wife and his parents and his son. Um, and so it had to feel like it was worth it. And so I think that's what he had to tell himself. But I really do feel like uh, there were moments where he was terrified and he knew that there might just be a couple of months left or, or, or even mm. a couple of weeks left. <clears throat> and he wouldn't address it directly, but I could even tell in just the way that we spoke sometimes. And one of the, the kind, you know, it became a joke of our relationship, but, um, you know, I, I flew out to Halifax a couple of times a year um, to, to, to spend time with him. And whenever we said goodbye, it would be this kind of like jokey and, and dramatic, you know, goodbye, Forever, forever, maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, <laughs> you know, I, and then we would send these like very, you know, hard on our sleeve emails to each other after these visits, kind of thinking, like, let's say what we need to say now, and mm. then he would just keep living, and then I would go see him a couple <laughs> months later yeah. or a couple years later, and um, and and all, you know, I I, I don't want to say all was fine, but but he was still mm. around and kicking. And so I think also just the fact that he kept bouncing back made him think sometimes, like, maybe I will beat this after all. But I I do think there was a lot of fear, and that fueled his decision to not find out how much time Mm. was left. Was it it ever annoying, like, um, like, like saying... Like when you talk to somebody in the grocery store and then, and, and then, and then you end up seeing them four more times and you're like, Oh, <laughs> oh this again, God, uh, and you give them the, you give them the nod or the yeah. like a little salute, like, Hey, we're not going to have another conversation yeah. because we you both, already you said both goodbye. pay for your groceries at the exact same time and you're both leaving at the same time. The and then you just have to ignore them. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it was always. A delightful surprise that Layton yeah. continued to live. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there there was actually a point. The longest time that I spent um, without seeing him was a year. Um, at the end of 2015, um, my husband got an opportunity to to move to India for a year for work. And, you know, you guys talked to him in 2015. The cancer had spread to his brain at that point, mm. and... You know, you know, one of the first things that I thought about when we were contemplating whether or not to go was, it is very likely Leighton will die when I'm gone. And mm. I don't, you know, forget about the project. It's just, I don't want to lose my friend and, and not be able to see him. Um, and it was really nice that he was still holding on when, when mm. I came back and I got to have, you know, one last visit with him uh, in, in person after my return. And then he, he died a few months after that. Yeah. Do you, do you I th- like, I, I, I know that I'm we sorry. have, like... Jared, can I can I just um, get this off my chest? Because it's, it just came up and, like, I it's 
take like really distracting me from the conversation. I just wanted to mention it here because I I totally forgot about this until thinking about this a, a minute ago. And when I was the last time I saw Leighton was um, I was uh, going to the um, Victoria General Hospital to see um, my mom was going through chemotherapy. And I was walking into the hospital and Leighton was just walking out of the door and he, he didn't even realize that it was me and he held the door for me. And I, I walked in and, and I realized it was him. And I said, hey, Leighton. And he looked at me and he goes, and he was just so like sad and defeated. And like, you could tell that he had just come out of like, I don't know, an appointment where he just received some really bad news. And he just said, he didn't even like really talk to me. He just said, I hope you're not going to see anybody in there that you know. And I was walking in to see my mom and it was just like, I felt so sad for him. And like, I was sad that I was going in to see her, but also like, it was just really like tough to see him like that because he was always such like, it just felt like he, he always put up like a strong, you know, he put on like a strong personality to, to, to make sure that everybody else was okay and to like see the disease, like take somebody and, and like beat them down into that position was just like really disheartening. And also like then going in to see my mom and be like, fuck, like, you know, like at one point he was resilient and to the point where like, he wasn't going to let anything like upset him or make him feel like he wasn't going to make it. And, and, you know, made it really hard, I think, for me during that time of my mom's treatment to be like, oh, yeah, like, everything will be okay. Like, she's going to beat this. And I think that, like, we we put so much emphasis sometimes on, like, the importance of staying mentally strong when you're, when you're quote-unquote, battling an illness. And, like, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes the illness doesn't fucking care how strong you were mentally. You know, like, sometimes at the end of the day, it's it's going to take you anyway. And like, the reality is, is that we're, we're all inevitably going to die. So like, I, it's funny because like on one, you know, one, one part of me really like applauds his ability to be so strong for the people around him. And, and also, so, so like, like Taylor said, like living in the moment and being present or trying to be as present as possible each day and not worrying about when that end end is going to come. But like at the same time, it will like it, it, whether it's, you know, a week from now or a year from now or, or 20 years from now, like it is, I don't want to be a bummer, but like it is coming for us. And I don't know. I don't know what else I'm saying, but it's just like, I found it really hard. I think that um, it was, a real burden for him sometimes to be like, you know, irreverent Leighton and making, you know, kind of roast jokes about the coffee enemas and stuff. And I think that that was sometimes to put other people at ease because uh, talking about death, as you guys know, makes a lot of people very uncomfortable and they're afraid they're going to say the wrong thing to you. They think that, they're supposed to reassure you that, you know, you're going to 
fight and, and, and get through it. You know, one thing that Leighton really hated was when people would say, and, and very well-meaning people, but they would say, I'm, I'm praying for you. Right. Um, because the thing is, it's like, none of that really makes a difference in the end. Like, you know, cancer doesn't care about that. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that, you know, especially near the end, um, one of the hardest things for me to see was when he started to kind of lose his sense of humor a bit. And it yeah. felt like that was, you know, the kind of defining trait of his personality, just that he could find, you know, really immature places to make jokes. Um, and, and, and he could find, you know, like dark humor, um, you know, in, in these subjects that we don't normally talk about, but there were some points when I would send him an email or would be talking on the phone and, and I would, I, I almost felt like I was perfectly setting him up for a joke and he wouldn't take the right. opportunity. And I could tell, you know, especially because this was cancer in his brain. Um, okay. He is changed now. And I think that Candace saw that more than anyone else um, firsthand. And so mm -hmm. the grieving process began for her long before his, his death. And, and I think in, in many ways it did for me too. Mm -hmm. There was I, a, there was a, there was a, um, a part in the book where you um, that sort of like kind of explicitly laid that out. Um, and I'm trying to remember the way it was described, like something along the lines of like, you know, the shell has, the shell is still here, but the, but the soul, the soul within it, you know, left a long time ago. Um, and, and it's, it's, you know, we've talked, you know, I know that this wasn't, this wasn't ever a part of the conversation that we have with Leighton, but, you know, medical assistance in, in dying is something that we talk a lot about on the show. And, and when you are, it, it was something that I couldn't help but just start thinking about over and over again as I was, as I, as I was, you know, kind of being guided through this, through the process of, of, of Leighton's, Leighton's turning, like when we, when you say, you know, he, he lost his sense of humor. He had, you know, he had cancer in his brain, his personality is changing. And you, this process of becoming essentially a, a, sh a shadow of what you once were. And I, I don't know where really where I'm going with that, but it was just something that it was just something that really jumped out at me. Like, like I wonder if at this time, if that was something that was, because I believe in 2015, I don't know if Made was was accessible then. Um, no, I, don't I don't believe think it was. so. No. And 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 I don't think we we <laughs> didn't really talk about it much then because it wasn't accessible to anybody. It wasn't it wasn't legal in Canada, and, and it just kind of brought up for me like like I would have even though even though Leighton seemed to be very defiant in his in in his in his relationship with death. Like I wonder if that would have ever been something that he um, wanted to wanted to consider and, and not just Leighton, but also, but also Candace in the, in the sense that for the people that are, that you're that are, that are the closest to you in your life, watching somebody become somebody else mm. in their final weeks and months of their life. Uh, it, I can't even, I don't want to say I can't imagine because we've been, um, we've been humbly, um, reminded that we can imagine these things. We just kind of choose not to sometimes, but it's challenging to fully f 
to fully try to comprehend how challenging that would be to see somebody to see somebody uh, transform over 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 time in their in their final weeks and months. Um, <clears throat> Dexshawn, I know that you were good friends with Leighton, um, and I can't help but think about like how. <clears throat> How, like, when we have people come on to the show to talk about their experience with illness, um, I know, I know from, from myself, from having done this and, and like, you know, been a guest technically on our own show. And I know from other guests that we've had on the show that like to sit down and have a one hour conversation, uh, where, where like it's no, no holds barred, anything goes can be like a really, therapeutic experience um now typically we have someone come on and they'll sit down and they'll talk to us for an hour and then they leave and then you know that's that's the end of that relationship um in your case it's like it's this constant thing that's in the background and and you're sort of you 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 were sort of always popping up in Leighton's life and having these types of conversations at length um and I'm wondering like I can imagine if we were doing that with a guest over and over and over again, it would, it would no longer, it would no longer be therapeutic, but it would start to like become therapy. Like, I feel like it would, it it would start to cross a line where I would probably start to feel like almost as, as though I'm stepping into a therapist role. Was there, did you feel like at any point you were, you were a therapist or, or kind of stepping into that role? It, and and maybe not even for Leighton, but but perhaps for for Candace or like other other members of his family. It did big time, uh, and it was in part because Leighton fully said to me uh, multiple times, and it made me incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> you are the closest thing to a shrink that I have, and <laughs> and I say that it made me uncomfortable because you know I was not qualified at all to be playing that role in his life, and. Um, and you know, perhaps he could have benefited a lot from doing therapy, but it was something that he was not interested in. Right. And uh, I know that Candace made several attempts to, to try and get him to, but it was, uh, it wasn't something he wanted to do. How much did you invoice him? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess if this book sells well, it's like <laughs> down the road. I'm getting yeah. <laughs> no, all um, man off. <laughs> you know, yeah, um, totally. it. it, it it has come up in, in other reporting that I've done before. You know, sometimes um, people feel that they can be vulnerable with you in, in a way that they can't with, with others because, yeah. you know, as you guys know, you ask people questions that other people are often afraid to ask and then you don't interrupt them and, and you don't, mm. you know, um, you don't go to sh- overshare your own stuff like, you just sort of let the silences marinate a bit and uh, and sometimes that, you know, is, is all someone needs. And so, you know, I, I, I'm happy that I could be there for Leighton in that way and, and, and I hope that I provided, um, you know, some comfort to him. And, and you know, I, I was always worried that the relationship to me felt, at least at the beginning, very one-sided. Like, I was asking all these questions. I was, like, taking from him, and I was taking from his family. Um, And especially when I would go to visit them in Halifax, like, it was very intense, I think. I I mean, if you can imagine somebody that, uh, you know, this is from Candace's perspective, somebody that you've never met before showing Mm. up at your house, 
and spending two full days with your family, just kind of hovering and taking notes, and she's got a recorder that she's holding. Yeah. Um, that that was the the kind of uh, sort of invasive approach that I took at the beginning. And, um, you know, when Leighton would later confess to me, like, you know, things that I know he hadn't told Candace and I know that he hadn't told his parents, mm. um, it was a very privileged position to be in. And, and I know that it came with kind of a lot of responsibility. And I sometimes felt um, ill-equipped, but um, in those moments, I just thought the best thing I can do is is listen to him. I'm not giving him any advice. Um, and I think that maybe really all he needs right now is to unload. And if I can be mm. the, you know, the, the person who listens, mm. um, but okay. So, so on uh, to, to kind of hop on that, you, you aren't a therapist, you weren't his therapist, but you were stepping into this role where you kind of were an unofficial, you know, like you put it shrink for him. Um, and I know that, like, a therapist's job is to, it, like, that's their job. They sit and they take, they take, and they take. And then they, and then they, they sort of reflect a mirror back and, and there's, like, this, this process that they go through with their clients and they have this, like, built into their training. They have this ability to go, I'm also, as much as I'm going to take, I'm not going to keep. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, like, take this home with me. <clears throat> Were you, like, did this take an emotional toll on you? to to be to step into that role for him and and for and for Candace um you like like were you, like were you prepared for that aspect of it so i remember at the very beginning so i started having these conversations with Leighton in i think it was the fall of 2013 <laughs> and then i made my first trip out to Halifax to spend time with him and his family in December of that year and i remember before i went and i was telling a couple of friends about this they kind of gently warned me um you know are you sure you want to kind of dive into something like this and you know Leighton is terminally ill you know he might not live for very much longer and you know, I just, they were worried about me and I think they wanted to protect mm. me. But I, I think I've always been a kind of expert compartmentalizer and I thought, no, 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 like I can use the journalist part of my brain and then, right. um, and, and then go back. But the thing was, from the beginning, this wasn't a typical source journalist relationship. No. Um, and I was taking it home with me because I was working on this on, you know, like my downtime. Like I would go and I would put in a full day at work and I'd be working on other stories. Then I would come home and then I would have these chats with Leighton and, and with his family. And I was using my vacation time to go to Halifax and, and, and spend time there. So it was, uh, it, it definitely took a toll as, as the months and, and the years wore on. And, you know, when I talk about these uh, these kind of goodbye, maybe forever exchanges that we had, you know, I had a lot of really rough moments sometimes after we would get off the phone or after I would visit with him um, because this was somebody I grew to care about a great deal. And the thought of losing someone who had become one of, you know, the, the dearest friends in my life um, mm. was, was hard to grapple with. Um, but I think... One of the great benefits of doing this project was I kind of had an excuse to talk to him, I think, more than maybe a lot of other people did. I think that, especially at the end, 
um, you know, when his energy was really zapped, um, you know, the more respectful people in his life were like, okay, you know, I'm not going to check in with Leighton too often because he needs to rest. Whereas, you know, with me, I mean, I would always couch it with like, hey, buddy, if, you know, you're too tired right now, we don't need to talk. But um, I think he knew that whatever this project would become um, was, was worthwhile. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. In terms of in terms of like you prepping for dealing with like the emotional toll of him dying, what was there? I mean, I'm just imagining the difference between like having a friend who dies unexpectedly and then having to start the grieving process afterwards. Um, did, was did you notice that you were beginning to start the grieving process earlier, like before he had passed away? Yes, um, you know. From the very beginning of this friendship with him, I knew that he he was probably going to die pretty soon. So mm-hmm. it, it was an unusual stage to begin a friendship with someone. Um, and, and there was so much about this that was like brand new to me and, and maybe I will never experience again. But uh, the, the grieving process, I think, for me really started in a big way when I found out the cancer had, had spread to his brain. Um, and... I I can't really, like, tell you what it was like. Like, I didn't go to therapy or anything like that, but I do remember having conversations with my husband and and with my friends about the very real fears that I had. And, you know, these were things that I couldn't express to him, um, especially because at at the beginning, you know, talking about his inevitable death was, was off limits. Like, he had set some pretty clear rules on, like, you know, what he was comfortable talking about. I mean, I would always ask every, every once and again, I would try and make him go down that path with me. And Mm. and he eventually did become comfortable, but you know, uh, he was somebody who never wanted to know, you know, how many years he had left or how many months he had left. Whereas after that very first email he sent me saying, I have stage four melanoma. What's the first thing I did? I Googled, like, how long does he have? So Mm. it was always at the back of my mind that, that he was going to go. When the, you know, the, the, the subtitle, um, and I'm sorry, I should say, um, we haven't, um, I don't even know. I don't know if we said the full title of the book yet. This is not the end of me is the title of the book. Um, and the subtitle lessons on living from a dying man. Um, um, I want to ask, um, I want to share, I want to share the, the lesson that, that Leighton left with me. Um, and, um, and then, and then maybe if you want to share, uh, one of the, one of the lessons, uh, one of the lessons that, um, that you think, um, stands out to you, uh, from Leighton. 
Um, that would be awesome. Um, when we when we recorded with Leighton, he said something that that stood out to me and stuck with me. And every time, every time somebody asked me what you know, what's something that we've learned from the podcast, from talking to people on the show, like any kind of question related to that, you know, we speak to it when we speak to when we speak at conferences um, and things. I, I I typically speak to it, um, and that was that in pop culture we are really often kind of fed this, um, you know, when you, when you know you're going to die, life becomes more beautiful. Like, you know, the colors are more vibrant. The, mm-hmm. the smells are more beautiful. The, this and that, everything becomes this heightened reality. And I asked Leighton that question. I said, is that, you know, do you feel that way? Knowing, knowing that the end is, you know, relatively near, you know, you're not sure when it, when it's coming, but you're, you're sort of in the space where you where you you know it's around the corner, and he said, "Yeah." Um, but then life goes on. You know, I got the I I was told I was going to die, and there was moments there where everything became this like, "Whoa, the world is different" because I know I'm going to die. And then, and this was the lesson that, like everything else that we slowly become accustomed to and take for granted, he did the same thing with death and that he became accustomed to the idea that he was going to die. And so even death became normalized for him in that way. And I kind of took it as this lesson on the human condition that there is nothing that we are unable to take for granted given time as it passes. Um, And that was something that always stayed with me and stuck with me that even something as massive as um, the inevitability of our own demise, that FYI is coming for all of us, we can take for for yourself. (laughs) Speak for yourself. Hold my thumb. Aubrey de de Grey is coming with some really really hot meds over the next uh, two decades. Um, So that was something that really stuck out to me, that uh, that stuck with me from our conversation with Leighton. Um, What is something that stuck out, uh, that sticks out for you? I remember on the the very first trip that I made to his house, um, he had this big map on the wall. And uh, it was something he purchased from the the illustrator Oliver Jeffers. And it was one of those, like, world maps where you can stick pins in it um, Mm. to kind of show the places you've traveled to. And... It's funny because it was behind glass. Like he put it in a frame behind glass, you know, and it felt so symbolic of kind of, you know, my life as I knew it before is kind of over. I'm not going to be this world traveler, which is how I, you know, he had defined himself for so long. And, um, you know, that was a stage of my life. It's behind glass now. It's up on the wall. And, you know, his world got so much smaller uh, after this cancer diagnosis. And I think he felt very, um, you know, suffocated uh, in, in some ways when he was doing this alternative therapy. And, and sometimes he just had this desperation, even when he was very, very sick, to get out of the house and, and go running. And, you know, it was one of, running was one of the only things that he could do uh, for himself near the end. You know, the cancer had spread to his brain. 
He uh, was was doing radiation. He was taking steroids. The steroids had wreaked havoc on his body. Um, and uh, he'd always been this kind of like tall, lean, lanky guy. And, and you know, the steroids had you know, prompted all of these like fat deposits to, to kind of show up on him. And, and he just didn't look like himself and he didn't feel like himself. And then the running was kind of something that was part of his old life that he could still do. And it became this fixation of his and he completed um, all of these 5K races when he was like sicker than most of us will ever be. And, you know, as someone who is... <clears throat> Uh, so much less active than that. Um, I, I found that really inspiring. Um, mm. And it doesn't have to be running, of course. It's just like the fact that he found, you know, even with this very finite amount of time left, I mean, he didn't know how much it was, but he thought like, even if I die next week, um, I, I want to have a goal and I want to have something that mm. is motivating me to like get to tomorrow and to get to the next day. And, uh, I, I think that we can all learn from that, whether or not we're terminally ill. Dr. Sean, I want to. I wanted to ask you. Um, it, it, it's it's interesting. We haven't talked about this at all during this entire recording, but um, for people who don't know Leighton or Leighton's story, he had a three year old son, Finn. And one of the things that we talked about in our podcast recording with him was the um, we called it the "It Takes a Village" project that he was um, doing for his son Finn. So he was gathering this, um, part of it was gathering this list of names of people who were passionate about what they do in life, um, whether it was a job or a hobby. And he was putting together this contact list for um, his son, Finn, so that when he grows up, he can reach out to some of these people and learn about the professions or hobbies that they're interested Ooh. in. And I wanted to ask you, um, one, if you if if there's anything that you can add about that project, if there's any thing that you saw from the inside that um uh, that you could share with us and I, I was curious are you a part of that list and do you hope that uh Finn reaches out to you someday because I know personally I put my name on the list and I would absolutely love it um if I heard from Finn um once he grows up so um Finn is now seven and it's like wow he looks like he's 19 feet tall. Like he has the exact physical build of Leighton and yeah. it is both spooky and really moving to see. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of that project, um, I, I think uh, Leighton was hoping that uh, it would be when Finn was a little bit older that, that um, all of those kind of contact cards would be shared with him. So uh, I haven't talked to Candace about it lately, but uh, as far as I know, um, you know that that process hasn't uh, hasn't started yet. Mm -hmm. And Leighton used to always joke too. He was like, "I'm doing all this stuff to to prep Finn, um, you know, and I'm putting like you know he solicited people to send videos, um, you know, sharing stories about you know their memories of of him and and their experiences with him. He was like, you know, I'm I'm getting all this stuff together and I'm putting it on like a USB key, but like. By the time Finn's old enough to look at this, he'll be like downloading stuff to his eyeball. So yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't, I don't really know the state of, of any of that. And as far as I know, uh, Finn has has not seen any of it yet. Um, but uh, something very cool uh, that uh, I, I checked with Candice if it was okay to share um, while doing interviews, you know, uh, 
while promoting this book is that um, she uh, recently got remarried. Um, she has a really wonderful new partner. Mm. And, um, you know, when, if and when you read the book, um, you'll, you'll see that um, something that she really <clears throat> wanted um, after Finn was to have a second kid. And it was a point of tension in her relationship with Leighton. And uh, it was really difficult, you know, as, as he got sicker. It, it was kind of pushed off the table completely. But mm. uh, she... Um, had a child with this this uh, new partner of hers too, and so Finn has a little sister, and they are just mm. a really lovely family. And um, you know, the wedding was earlier this summer, and uh, Willie Layton's mom sent me some pictures, and there is this one that you know, like my heart just got caught up in my throat when I saw it because it's a picture of Finn, and he's wearing khaki shorts and uh, and a white shirt he's he's you know dressed for his mom's wedding and um it's just taken from the back and you can see that he has a camera around his neck and he was taking uh. a picture of uh his his mom and, and his stepdad and <laughs> it's uh. you know i i feel like i've held it together in in uh in talking about this book but like that picture really gets me because yeah. he is the spitting image of his dad and I remember, you know, part of the whole reason Leighton wanted to do the It Takes a Village project um, and then, you know, getting all these people to sort of share their professions with his son was he never wanted Finn to feel like he had to grow up in his dad's image. He never wanted to pressure him to be anything and be interested in the same things as him. But, um, you know, Candace told me that the way he was even taking pictures reminded him her so much of Leighton like you know she said you can give a kid a camera and they'll just shoot off like a million shots and it's just garbage Um, (laughs) but Finn was very careful and was just framing up the shot and then he just waited for this kind of perfect moment to to click the shutter and that was you know the way that Leighton would would shoot weddings too (laughs) so I just found that uh, incredibly moving and um, you know Leighton died when Finn was just three years old, um, but there are some things that, you know, he inherited without even kind of having to witness firsthand, which I think is so, mm. so cool. Well, that is an incredibly happy uh, uh, little period on, um, on that. And, um, and, I, and I think, I, I don't know, I don't know what, I, what any of the contributions were to this project, but... Um, I will say that um, the book that you have written is a is a uh, an incredible contribution to mm. um, Finn's ability to understand his father at a in a very intimate um, way. So um, thank you for for telling that story and being there in the hardest of moments and, and capturing that and putting it down on paper because it is, uh, um, I'm thinking about Finn reading this book when he's, uh, mm. when he's older and I just can't think of a better way of, uh, of being able to understand your father, um, in a way that I think a lot of people don't even get to know their, 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 their family members. Um, on in as intimate of a, of a way as this book 
um, is able to do. So thank you for that. So generous. Thank you. Again, the book is, uh, this is not the end of me. Dakshana, um, again, thank you so much. This is really, really a treat to go, to go down memory lane with you. And, uh, the book is available now. Go get it, find it wherever you, you, you know, wherever good books are sold. Um, and, uh, thank you. Thanks for taking the time out of your day today to, uh, to do this with us. It really, really does mean the world to us. Thank you guys so much. It was a pleasure. Oh, there we go. That was our conversation with Doc Shana, all about a book that features one of the most special humans we've ever met. Mm-hmm. And also, Doc Shana is now one of the new most special people that we've ever met, right? Dude, she's next level yeah. special. Yeah, it was yeah. pretty great. Mm-hmm. Uh, go get yourself that book, folks. Uh, buy it, snatch it up, put it on your bookshelf, take it off the bookshelf once a day, read a chapter a day. You'll be done the book. In no time, and uh, you'll also be supporting. Um, you'll be supporting Canadian writers and um, and a beautiful story and a beautiful story. Uh, that is it for this week. And uh, if if you if you didn't if you if 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 yep. if, if that wasn't enough for you, mm-hmm. then go to Twitter, go to Instagram at Sick Boy Podcast, go to go to Facebook if you want. Uh, you know, if you're still using that, if you're still using that cesspool, mm-hmm. do hey, that. Boomer. We're on there. Hey, Boomer. Go uh, to Facebook or hit us up on LinkedIn because uh, mm-hmm. we've been we've it's uh, it's it's one of those really helpful. It's one of those yeah. things that we've been on, <clears throat> you know, um, at Sick Boy Podcast. Yeah, um, yeah, and uh, for all of our Estonian listeners, um, we got some great. We're on the we're on the local social um, media network in Estonia, <clears throat> picking up a lot of traction there. So a little bit of throwback joke for all you longtime listeners out there. Uh, if you've got any questions or comments that you would like us to read on the show, some really nifty stories um, about your own, maybe your personal journey with whatever you've been going through or just the the reasons why uh, I'm your favorite host on the show, you can send that stuff to letters at sickboypodcast.com. Or if you want to apply to be on the show and be one of our lovely guests, you can go to sickboypodcast.com slash contact and email us. You could do that. Yeah. You could also send us a letter thanking Lauren Sankey for being an incredible co-producer of this podcast or Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, and myself for also being co-producers. You could also send a letter and thank Jeff pa- Pappy, Pappy Lonis for, mm. for being the daddy of this podcast. Oh, grandpappy. And grandpappy. Uh, you could also thank Donovan, the Meerkat Morgan, for the amazing sound design that he provides. Um, or... If you want, you can send a letter to us and say, take part. That theme music was really great. Mm-hmm. Get back you could together. do that. Get back but together like, and start making music again. You could, you could do that. It, was, it, would, it would be a good idea. That is it for this week. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.